Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Thanks for coming out tonight. Um, my name's Charlie Beckett. I'm the director of POLIS, which is the uh, media think tank uh, here at the LSE. Um, and I've, I've already written a review of uh, David's new book on my blog, charliebeckett.org, um, in which I said I thought it was uh, a, a brilliant dissection of various conspiracy theories. I said that it was a very useful handbook for anybody who has to deal with conspiracists in public, and I said that it was a fascinating analysis of why people create conspiracy theories and why other people believe in them. Now, the more cynical or perhaps conspiratorial of you may put that glowing review down to the fact that David and I were both members of not one, but two shadowy organizations who have shaped the lives of millions of people. Both stand accused of having secret socialist agendas. I can reveal exclusively tonight that both David and I used to dig latrines, go on hikes, and eat porridge in rain-swept fields as participants in the most wonderful forest school camp, which was a North London liberal organization born out of the uh, deeply left-wing woodcraft folk movement back in the 1920s. I think it's where I think you've written about this. I think it's accurate. I think it's where both of us had our formative smoking and sexual experiences. Um, but not, not with, not each, with other. each other. <laughs> <laughs> you said that far too quickly, David. Um, he's got something to hide. Um, but of course, uh, uh, we also worked for that notoriously biased, self-serving bastion of anti-capitalism, the BBC. Um, however, unlike David, uh, I was never a member of the Communist Party, nor, unfortunately, have I ever written for Rupert Murdoch's Times newspaper, and I most certainly would not want anyone to mistake me for a supporter of Tottenham Hotspur. So perhaps it was, after all, just a coincidence, and perhaps David's book is, in fact, just a very good piece of journalism. Judge for yourself. He's here to tell us all about it. David Aronovich. Uh, blue skies, Charlie. Yeah, blue skies. Um, that was the greeting actually used in that organisation, the secret greeting. Um, I don't know, but I don't know whether you, uh, like I am, are also a higher order reptilian, um, <laughs> uh, as according to David Icke. Um, this book uh, is a kind of folly, really. Uh, it's a ridiculous obsession um, that has taken me something in the region of six years to write. Um, and I have, in the course of that period of time, examined so many conspiracy theories that I think I must be regarded as having become as obsessed as any conspiracy theorist is. And in fact, somebody asked me um, if there is a kind of um, uh, obs uh, obsessive quality, a sort of psycho psychiatric uh, question behind some conspiracy theories. Um, don't you share in that problem in some ways by now? And I think, actually, I probably do. But actually, it's not the case that people who believe in conspiracy theories or even put conspiracy theories forward that are, for the most part, uh, lunatic, stupid, ridiculous, or any of these things whatsoever. And that's not any part of my argument. Um, conspiracy theorists um, usually, and conspiracy theorists will almost always emanate from the educated classes, 
from professors, students typically, um, from journalists, um, from professional classes, doctors and so on. It isn't by and large an emanation out of any working class movements. Working class movements have tended not to believe in conspiracy theories per se. They come from another kind of source altogether. Now, the origins of my writing the book, and let me say first of all, that in a passive way, I have been <clears throat> a conspiracy theorist in the sense that my entire generation was brought up of education and background, was brought up believing that John F. Kennedy was killed as the consequence of a conspiracy. Um, I hardly knew anybody who didn't believe that. We didn't interrogate the facts behind it. It was just something we were brought up to believe. And so I'm not accept accepting myself from the general accusation of a lack of scepticism, which I think attaches to most people who invest in conspiracy theories. I think, although, paradoxically, there is a presentation as being the ultimate sceptic, in fact, what binds conspiracy theorists together, one of the characteristics, is an almost willful credulousness when it comes to a certain train of thought. And I want to interrogate that a little bit, but I also want to leave plenty of time for us to discuss things and have a to and fro about things rather than just me talking to you. So let me just tell you first what set me on the track of this. I was uh, in Tunisia doing a film for BBC Two on holiday destinations where they torture people. And it was an undercover thing. Um, and uh, we had to go to and see various people who were, cut, were being watched by the secret police. We filmed them, we went in there, um, and we were going down south from Tunis down to a place called El Gem, where there's a, an amphitheatre. I was going to do one of those sort of you know, typical pieces to camera where you stand there and say, this is what tourists come to see, but little do they know, that, etc., etc. You can imagine, you can work out what the entire rest of that piece said. Uh, and on the way down, this chap uh, who was driving us, very, very nice chap in his early 30s, turned around to me and said, you know they didn't land on the moon, don't you? And it's very difficult to know, it's very difficult for me to describe why it is that's just set the hair running for me. It was something about the entire... There I was, I was in the car. As he retailed to me the supposed reasons why it was impossible for people to have landed on the moon, there was the flag that was fluttering in zero gravity conditions. There were the stars that weren't there that should have been. And a number, another four or five things uh, which suggested that maybe something funny had been going on, that the pictures were impossible. And I thought to myself, one, I know it is harder to fake landing on the moon than it is to land on the bloody moon. Um, every instinct that I have tells me that to organise a conspiracy of that sort would be absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Just imagine for a moment the four astronauts and so on. But also, imagine Jodrell Bank tracking this non How did that happen? How was everybody... Etc, etc. You can, you, can, you can work it out for yourself. That was number one. Number two, I thought, I don't... He has the facts and I don't. And this is irritating me, because all I can say in the context of this argument is, I don't know anything about it, but I don't believe you. This is a very, very weak argument in a car. Um, and so I immediately thought, I want something that gives me a reasonable chance of having a discussion with somebody like this where I don't just fold up 
in the middle of the discussion and say, oh, well, have it your own way, but I don't believe you. I wanted to do something slightly better than that. And I have to say that in many other situations since then, I have been in places where somebody's leaned over and said, mobile phones don't work at altitude. So consequently, none of the calls from those planes could have been made on 9-11, and so it's all fake, and so on. And so gradually, finding out the answers just to all those questions has been in itself, although an obsession, has been something of a liberation. But the third thing that I thought was, why? Why would you want to believe? I mean, to me, I'd seen the men go on the moon as part of a long build-up of moonshots um, and spacewalks and so on, which went right the way back to when Yuri Gagarin first went in a spaceship, first man in space, in 1960. It had been an incredible nine years to get, uh, to get the first men onto the moon. And I thought, what? I can see that there's a kind of gossipy pleasure to being able to say to somebody like me, I know something that you don't. I understand the way the world really works in a way that you don't. But I wanted to know beyond that what got a very intelligent guy in a way, and it didn't, I knew that this particular argument that we were having about the moon landing didn't really hurt anybody in particular. I mean, you know, it's, it wasn't going to stop people landing on the moon again. It might add a certain, a certain kind of credulity. It was arguably a little bit of a waste of our time, but then we had quite a lot of time to kill on the way down to the road to El Gen. But there was something about it which I found, and I will be honest about it, the situation maddening. As I have been similarly maddened by, for instance, the credulity shown towards the work of Dr. Andrew Workfield over MMR, as I watched a major health disaster being created for no good reason and out of nothing other than people's willingness to believe bad science instead of good science and their inability to distinguish one from another. Actually, almost their desire to believe the counterfactual, the, uh, what Damien Thompson has called counter-knowledge. So there was this kind of psychological impetus which also arose from that. Anyway, I just thought this would be interesting. Uh, and at first, I was, looking, I, I, was be, I was looking at all kinds of sort of hoaxes and frauds and so on, which I, would, which I thought were of a part of this. But the more I began looking at the major conspiracy theories and the way in which they developed, and some of them, I became, uh, became aware that there was also a classification of conspiracy theory which was fantastically damaging. Um, the most obvious one, the one I start the book with, was the forgery known as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was the, uh, a document that purported to be a record of a shadowy meeting of the top Jews of the world and about how they were going to control the world for their own purposes. And they were going to do this by taking over all the newspapers and running all the newspapers from all the different points of views and all the political parties, all from different points of view, by flooding the world with pornography and so on. Um, a forgery that was made in the 1890s it was then reprinted in Russia in a different form in uh, the early 1900s, around about the time when there was lots and lots of uh, uh, political upheaval going on there. But the time it really took off was after the First World War. Um, and it took off in all kinds of countries. And it was printed in all kinds of languages. And it was printed in Britain. One of the people who believed it for a while was Winston Churchill. Another one was the editor of the Times who ran an editorial saying, if this is true, it's absolutely terrible. The Spectator believed it. Um, the Times eventually had a correspondent who tracked down in Constantinople, was shown in Constantinople, 
the document going back to Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte's time that actually had been the basis for this forgery. And then the Times retracted and said that it was indeed a forgery. By then, it was far too late. The thing had become what we now call viral in places like Germany and to a certain extent in France and became one of the under ideological underpinnings of the anti-Semitic movement in Germany and Nazism. Now, we see the copy of the, the use of the protocols of the Elder Zion in the Hamas Charter. Hamas says that, this, that they now don't believe in this particular section of the Charter. It was created in 1988. But certainly in other places, and in Iran in particular, it is still widely believed. It's widely propagated on Iranian television. Um, a documentary, for instance, about Hollywood, um, which shows how all kinds of things like from films like Alien and so on are serving international Zionist causes will actually refer back to as planned in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, so I was very well aware in, as I began to construct this first chapter of the degree of impact that a, cons that a conspiracy theory widely believed could conceivably have. The same is arguably true of 9-11 conspiracy theories. There was a report in my paper from Anatole Levin, a column, who was talking about being in Pakistan and how the battle against the Taliban was ideologically weakened by the widespread belief in Pakistan, uh, amongst ordinary Pakistani people, that 9-11 was an inside job that uh, President Bush planned it, and that this actually made mobilization against the Taliban even more difficult. Um, and of course, there's quite a lot of cross-citation goes on in a situation like this, with people in Pakistan saying, look, even people in America are saying this. Uh, that even is one of the most kind of glorious words in this context because, of course, there are people in America who will say just about anything that there is to be said about anything. But nevertheless, it's used as a major piece of cross-evidence. And so there is, if you like, an accounting to be done in terms of damage. I have to admit also that there is a sort of fascination in other aspects of conspiracy theory which are less about damage and more about how human beings are, how we are, and how we want things to be. In one of the chapters in the book, um, I look at Kennedy and Diana and Marilyn Monroe as a threesome, partially because they seem to exhibit a similar kind of tendency, the desire to believe that an iconic figure cannot simply disappear off the face of the earth in a kind of preposterous way, that there must be a better story than reality. And quite often, conspiracy theories, it seems to me, are a, are a narrative improvement upon reality. They make for better dramas, and they make for more satisfying dramas. And the desire of human beings for a particular type of drama, for drama with a particular narrative arc, is very substantial. Let's just look at Diana for a moment, and in terms that a, uh, a TV producer might. Uh, young girl, very pretty, becomes a fairy tale princess in a fairy tale wedding. Everything is wonderful, though some hints begin to be dropped by the husband when he says things like, what is love, and so on. But maybe you only recognize them afterwards. Rumors begin to seep out that actually everything is not what it seems. This grows in crescendo until the couple, until Andrew Morton's book, it all begins to be revealed, she's been in a bad way. By the time she gets to her panorama interview, she's telling us about her rows with the family and how, and she puts it this way, the family don't ever want me to be queen, and so on. 
This is the state she's in when she finds love again in the arms of Dodi Al-Fayed to be rubbed out in a car crash. This is not a satisfactory narrative arc. If you were doing a play about an imaginary princess, it's not how you'd finish it. People wouldn't like it. They, they wouldn't go for it. Uh, conspiracy theorists in this area simply enormously improve upon reality and will go to almost any lengths, uh, logical lengths, in order to improve upon reality, to create a motive, to create a circumstance. Princess Diana's death is nearly impossible properly to conspiracize because it's so clearly accidental, because nobody really can possibly have known what was going to happen. So inordinate lengths are gone to in order to create uh, a conspiratorial atmosphere for it. I mean, first, in the classic, locus classicus of conspiracy theories, which is simply to raise what will be called disturbing questions about the official account. Uh, the official account is the same as the widely believed account in the period after something has happened. That's actually what it is, but it's called the official account because it poses the conspiracy theorist as a kind of in interesting um, uh, and independent-minded insurgent against these sort of dark forces of conformity uh, and so on. It poses them as the skeptic against what gets tend to be called the sheeple, the people who don't understand, people who just go along with everything from quiet life and so on. And this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of way in which it will be presented, this kind of mindset, in a sense, that, that one gets into. And actually, it's a, sort of, it's, it's a form of a mindset that we can all have at one time or another. So those interested me as a kind of subset uh, of conspiracy theories. Then there is the, um, the fashionable nature of conspiracy theories. They tend to follow particular fashions. There was a fashion, and I've got a chapter about it, in the 1980s for a nexus between the American British governments and the nuclear industry. There were any number of dramas, uh, TV dramas, which were based on this kind of nexus, also involving some kind of American dramas. They're essentially the whistleblower. The whistleblower may be a journalist, maybe somebody who works for the company involved, gradually finds out something terrible, is about to go public with it, and is rubbed out by the nexus. And maybe their information gets through, and maybe it doesn't. But this is a great uh, motif for the 80s. And in the 80s, there was uh, the killing of a woman called Hilda Murrell, uh, who was an elderly woman in Shrewsbury, and this was widely in hand. Tamdiel, Labour MP, stood up in Parliament and said that he had been told by two anonymous security people that this had been the work of the security forces because she had been onto something about the bell. Her nephew had been in naval intelligence at the time of the Belgrano. This was Tam Diel's belief. Her nephew's belief was that Diel was wrong and that actually the reason was because she was an objector to the Sizewell um, uh, nuclear power station and that this was the reason and there had been a botched operation, uh, a burgling operation that had gone wrong. And for 20 years, for 20 years, this was believed, although believed with a sort of diminishing degree of uh, intensity, but nevertheless brought up from time to time until DNA evidence showed that it, she had been killed by a 16-year-old burglar from a local care home. Uh, as far as I know, Tamdiel has never accounted under these circumstances for what he was told. But the similarities between that and what Norman Baker says he was told about the death of Dr. David Kelly are really quite striking. It, you know, it takes very little to see, and that's my penultimate chapter, by the way, is dealing with Baker's book about uh, Kelly. It takes very little to see the similarities there. So 
There's the desire to improve upon messy reality. There's the desire to give what we call agency to accident. Uh, it's said, and it's true, that for conspiracy theorists, accident and coincidence begin to be taken out of the human cycle. They are simply, everything is, um, is activated in a sense. Everything is a uh, result of an agency uh, and, it, uh, and the agency's consciousness. I mean, one classic example of that is the use of the notion of cui bono, uh, who benefited. Look at the situation if you want to know who did something and ask yourself who benefited. This is actually much more difficult than it seems to be. Uh, who benefited from the First World War? I mean, if anybody can answer that question, I mean, who benefited? And not only that, who would have gone into the First World War knowing for sure that they would have benefited from it at the end and got it right? Uh, it would have been very difficult. So the same thing could be said about 9-11. It's widely said that 9-11 was planned by the Bush administration because in order to give it a pretext to uh, involve itself in, uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and that it was somehow in the interests of the Bush administration for this to happen. It doesn't really bear thinking about that if you were in the CIA or the FBI at that time, you would believe that it benefited you to have the worst terrorist incident in American history and on American soil, attack on American soil, happen on your watch. I suggest to you that it would be taking an extremely rosy view of the future to believe that actually you would benefit as a consequence of this happening while you were in charge. Nevertheless, this is where the kind of principle of cui bono can, uh, can take you. And so it's a very unreliable, it's a fantastically unreliable notion with which to go into and look at history. So it becomes a sort of, if you like, a kind of sort of conspiracist nostrum. So we have the improvement upon reality. We have the, diminu the, the, the belief in overarching agency. And that is very important because that's both pessimistic in one sense. We live in a world where huge forces can do almost superhuman things behind people's backs and reorder history. But in a funny and paradoxical way, it's also rather optimistic because it slightly implies its polar opposite, which is that we could also have super agency somehow or other that could sort out everything in the world by the same degree of operation of omnipotence. And so I kind of wonder whether it isn't in some sense a kind of defense, actually. It's not just paranoid, but it's a defense against the feeling that we're rather helpless in this world and that an awful lot happens by accident and, uh, and problematically. Other people say, and I think it's true, it can be a way of re-describing power relationships in society without actually having particularly to uh, account for them in any kind of complex way. Uh, and I think there's a degree of truth behind that as well. Um, I'm going to just end with one last thought because it was given to me, um, I was discussing this with a friend about three years ago, a psychoanalyst, um, practiced for 25 years. And we were talking about the question of paranoia and the belief that people were out to get you. And he said that in his experience, the most power people who suffered worse, most from paranoia, and who believed classically that if they went home, there would be a burglar or somebody there to try to get them or there was somebody watching them, were the elderly and the lonely. In other words, people 
actually for whom the alternative to paranoia was worse. Uh, because the alternative to paranoia is that no one cares about you at all. And he described this as the catastrophe of indifference. And although it's only speculative, um, like as is my speculation that conspiracy theories really essentially is hysteria for men, um, there aren't as many women who are interested in uh, conspiracy theory as there are men by a huge factor. Whereas, let's say, for instance, 80% of those who believe that they have been abducted by aliens are women. Um, now, this is, seems kind of puzzling, but then you think that the projection of the internal self onto the external world, in, in women may very well be a matter of what happens to their bodies, with men who tend to be more uh, uh, um, uh, tuned into the notion of controlling the world, it may be to the way in which externalised into the way in which the world works. Now, there is absolutely no provability to what I've just said. It is entirely hypothetical and speculative, uh, but I quite enjoy it as a speculation, and I offer it to you as my last one. Excellent, thank you very much David um, Of course there's always the alternative possibility which is that they're all true but um, let's throw it open now to <coughs> questions and we've got plenty of time so um, feel free to sort of make a point <coughs> as well as ask a question but try and, and uh, limit it to something relatively brief. So we take a couple in a row. Can we take the gentleman in the blue shirt there? And then, sorry, was there one down here? And then that gentleman, two blue shirts. Take those two first, please. Thanks very much. Um, I spent a few hours in the Texas School Book Depository last summer. And there are a few fishy things about Kennedy's assassination, I think. Like the bullet appeared on his, the um, operating table or whatever it was. The sort of ballistic evidence and, of course, Ruby. Ruby murdering Oswald as well. So I just wondered if you thought there was anything dodgy about that. Um, sorry, yeah. Well, I just want to say, um, well, I think c conspiracies exist, and most notably the neoconservative conspiracy to invade Iraq, which was launched on the basis of 9 11. Now, I mean, I'm saying I'm not a 9 11 conspiracy theorist at all, but you know, the, the, the fact is that the neoconservatives had this agenda of removing Sudan from power before, before 9 11, as, as set out, as articulated in the think tank, you know, Project for the New American Century. You know, they, they issued a report a year before 9 11 called Rebuilding America's Defences, which advocated the removal of, of Saddam. Didn't actually say that they'd do it on the basis of a fake, of a fake attack. So what I'm saying is, and there are other conspiracies as well, but I'm just saying that's the most obvious one. We're obviously, we're obviously used, obviously using, for example, you know, the, the lies about weapons of mass destruction, and of course about the lies linking, saying that Saddam Hussein was, was linked with Osama bin Laden. So that was a huge conspiracy, which, became, which was, came out happened before all our, our, our eyes. Yeah. Let's let answer those, because those, those two kind of reflect, uh, go neatly together in, in a way. Okay. Um, one of the, I should say as a kind of preface, that one of the great big problems in this area, clearly, is that somebody will raise a particular fact which 
you can't easily check upon in the moment when they raise it. I mean, I've, I've said that to you before, and it's, and it's true. Usually, there are ways of doing it. And uh, on your question about the bullet, I haven't heard that theory about the bullet. I've heard the notion that the bullet flopped out onto the stretcher in the corridor uh, and so on, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure why this is supposed to be particularly suspicious uh, or, or anything. Uh, I think you might have gone to the uh, museum of, uh, you went to the museum there, yeah? Yeah, part of the problem with the museum is it is actually set up by a committed L, uh, JFK conspiracist. Uh, and so everything in it, I gather, I haven't been myself, I gather it's sort of tended in that direction. But I said, I, said, I myself started off being a JFK conspiracy of an entirely passive kind. Um, now, five or six years later, and Vincent Bugliosi's gigantic work, Reclaiming History, I challenge you to read that and emerge on the other side as a, 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 as a conspiracist. It really is the most compendious book about the death and deals with every single conspiracy theory on the way. It has to be said, it doesn't deal with them kindly. He's a very impatient man, but he does deal with them absolutely. But there always were essentially uh, one major and maybe one other objection to the notion that Lee Harvey Oswald was the killer. Um, essentially, the physical question of whether or not he could have done it, um, and the secondary question of whether anybody saw anything else. It is pretty clear that nobody did see anything else. Nothing. nothing. Nothing that would pass any kind of even the first stage evidential test. Um, so the question then rebounds on whether he could have done it. In other words, is the bullet a magic bullet? The bullet that hits Kennedy in the back of there goes through to hit Governor John Connolly and exits out of his uh, wrist. Um, is it a magic bullet? Is it an impossible bullet? No, it's not. When you look at the relative positions of those two people in the car, the angle that the shooting was done from, etc., it's not only just not impossible, it is possible and likely. Um, so then the question is, could, the, could somebody like Oswald, using that kind of rifle, have fired off three shots in the 7.6 seconds as it is that is required? The answer is, yeah, pretty easily, um, and he actually was a pretty good shot. Um, and not only that, then all you have to know is that in April of 1963, he'd already tried to assassinate somebody else using the same rifle. And you can see that it is actually a malign uh, act of history and coincidence that roots President Kennedy's motorcade past the book depository in which such a man was working. Um, on conspiracies exist, um, do you know, the nearest thing in what you said to a real conspiracy theory is the conspiracy theory that some people in the American government had that Saddam was in league with Al-Qaeda. That's the nearest thing to a conspiracy theory in what you were, in, in what you, in, uh, let me just talk, in, in what you were talking about. Um, there was no neocon conspiracy because the neons made absolutely no secret of what they wanted to do Saddam from the first. There is nothing remotely secret about it. They said it all the time. Um, uh, and, they, and, and they went ahead and did it. They said why they wanted to do it. They said how they'd like to do it. And they did it. Um, that's not very much of a conspiracy, nor do I think is there is a conspiracy involved in WMD. It's pretty clear from things like the Butler Report that what we are dealing here with is a pretty big case of confirmation bias. 
um, which is a slightly different, which is a slightly different thing, and which you see in police forces again and again and again. Saddam had had weapons of mass destruction. We all knew that they'd been substantial number had been found. He'd lied about them before they were found, and it was simply believed that he had done it again because that's what he did. And actually, if you remember, significant proportion of his own generals also thought that he had done. And every bit of evidence that was brought in that seemed to confirm that was taken as evidence that it was happening. And every bit of evidence that might have suggested that he got rid of them was discounted. In other words, that's a pretty massive case of conf confirmation bias, not, I think, uh, a conspiracy. But that would be my generalized answer to your question. Oh, you asked about the Al-Qaeda thing. I just said, uh, uh, put it briefly. Uh, it is true that Saddam allowed Ansar al-Islam to have a haven on the uh, adjacent to the semi-autonomous Kurdish lands, which uh, he wasn't allowed to operate into. Uh, and it may be, it may be, that the uh, American intelligence agents did believe that an Iraqi intelligence agent had met Atta. Uh, it may very well be. I was personally, you know, I've, I'm. I think actually probably it's on the far end of uh, a confirmation bias, and it was an act of propaganda really to throw it in without uh, without proper confirmation. I mean, I myself wrote before the Iraq war that I was sceptical about such a about such a prospect. Okay. Right. Let's try and take. Could you come down here and take? Thank you very much. Hang on a second. Just just wait for the microphones. Sorry. And then can Thank you, give you very them, much. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can you give the microphone to the other guy as well? Not you. No, not you. The other chap. That's it. And then yeah. th there. Microphone. There. Great. So you first, sir, and then you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Great presentation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, l let me uh, somehow ask you to address a little bit your main two questions. Why conspiracies are created first and second, why people believe them. Is there an explanation that there are always shortages in every investigation? There is always something missing in every inquiry. There is a little scratch on the car which nobody noticed, or there is a little piece of blood which nobody investigated. And collecting seven, eight, ten such missing parts of evidence is helping conspiracies to create a big stories. Secondly, why people do that? Again, maybe one explanation is it's cheap popularity. You want to look different from the mainstream, mm -hmm. from the official way of selling things. You can easily gather a crowd at Hyde Park Corner if you say something which is against the official account. There is no uh, question about that. Otherwise, if you just repeat what everybody else said, you are not interesting to the crowd. Finally, this multiplicity of why so many conspiracy theories? I will believe one conspiracist of JFK mother if it is just one. But some people say it is CIA, other people say it's KGB, other people say it's Cubans, the other people say it's Texas oil magnate. There are five or six conspiracy theories about JFK and Maybe these people should gather together in a conference and have a unified <laughs> single conspiracy which we can all maybe believe one day. That's right. That's sort of how the BBC works. Yeah. <coughs> Please. Yes. Well, just a <clears throat> couple of points. Isn't it true that because somebody has some view on something that may sound wacky to 90% of the people in, in the country. It doesn't mean to say it's not true. I suppose the ultimate conspiracy theory was the Holocaust. If in 1939 people had said, the Nazis have this plan to destroy the entire Jewish community in Europe, nearly everyone would have said, 
No, don't be ridiculous. Not even the Nazis would ever do anything like that. And invade the Soviet Union? No. You know, it's, it's, it's a crazy idea. It'll never happen. And, you, you know, there are <coughs> quite a number of cases, you know, like this, where somebody come ac comes across in the archives, which shows that you, somebody was, they the murder was in fact an assassination. Um, and you mentioned the other point, that the, the polar opposite to conspiracy theories are people who have theories that they found a solution to all of society's problems. Before the Russian Revolution, communists believed once private property was abolished, every problem faced by human beings be solved. Be no, no more war, no unemployment to be abolished, no one would go hungry, poverty would be abolished. And of course the truth was slightly different from that. And uh, you know, people, the free market people said, once you have a completely free market, business is allowed to operate by government with very little um, regulation, you know, we will have all the you know, problems of this world. And of course, you know, life isn't like that. Yeah. Okay. Again, those two work quite nicely together. To just take those, David. <laughs> and even if they didn't, we're going to take them anyway. Yeah, exactly. um, it's a conspiracy. Um, yes. Your question about why so many theories can arise out of the same circumstances, say JFK, um, I think one of the reasons is because uh, conspiracy theories precisely because conspiracy theories don't rise to the first evidential standard. I mean, there have been two, as far as I know, actual courtroom tests of conspiracy theories in that hundred years. Now, there may have been more than I just not noticed, where actually a conspiracy theory has come and had to stand you know, a, a courtroom test of evidence. One was in 1934 in Switzerland, when the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, when the publishers in Switzerland were sued successfully. Uh, because then the full nature of what the protocols were came out in court. Um, the second was in the Diana inquest last year, um, where it's, it's, so, it's really funny. I, I, forgive me for doing this. If I can just find it. This is Michael Mansfield, the, the Michael Mansfield, you know, the great, and I apologize for saying it, swinging dick, of reform of, of, of radical uh, uh, lawyerism here in Britain. Otherwise known as one of our leading barristers. One of your, <laughs> one of our leading barristers. Um, and here, this is an exchange towards the end of the uh, of the court case, uh, to the end of the inquest. Alfayed has put forward this big theory that Prince Philip and so on has been responsible through British intelligence for the death of Diana and has produced absolutely in nothing in court. And he's begun also to turn on the, um, uh, the uh, bodyguards and said that they are in it with Tony Blair and everybody else and so on, because actually their evidence is very inconvenient for Al Fayed's case. 
Um, why? Because it makes pretty clear that actually the big problem in the car accident are the arrangements made to ferry the, prince, uh, the Princess of Wales from one place to another, all of which arrangements of security are actually in the hands of the Ritz security run by Al-Fayed. Uh, so the coroner says this, are these allegations being maintained by Mr. Al Fayed? Because if so, Mr. Rhys-Jones is entitled to be told of any evidence in support of them and to give us his explanation. Mansfield, sir, I've been very careful in the examination. I have not maintained those and I'm not in a position to produce any material to support them. Coroner, why haven't they been withdrawn by Mr. Al Fayed since 9th of February 2006? They are very grave allegations and one would have thought that a man with any decency who was not going to pursue them would withdraw them. Mansfield, and this really, to me, is a kind of epitaph. May I say this with regard to that? I appreciate the nature and gravity of the allegations, and I hope in the longer term his position will be appreciated, and that is this, that he has been very concerned from the beginning to discover the circumstances of the crash and obviously what lay behind it. There have been many beliefs that he has held, and in my submission he was quite entitled to hold those beliefs, uh, were, as it were, exposed to this inquest. Whether there was material which supports them, it's very difficult for those people in those circumstances to relinquish a belief that has been firmly held, even though, as it may turn out, there is very little material to support the belief that they have. For example, that it's not suicide, or it is suicide, whatever it is, and therefore I hope that it will be understood that obviously it's for the person individually to obviously make that clear. <laughs> Now you can imagine what Michael Mansfield himself would have done with a witness like that on the stand who'd given an answer like that. That is the death knell of Diana conspiracy theorism uh, at that point. And actually, funnily enough, this is the one case where I think we can say that at that moment, by and large, it died as a kind of any kind of, uh, 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 of mass notion. So it's very interesting. But I think that's the reason why you get so many different theories is because there isn't any actually any substantial evidential base. I think in the case of 9-11, the reason why there aren't very many theories about who did it is because quite a large part of the 9-11 conspiracism emerges from um, not just a hatred of Bush and a belief that Bush and the Bush administration and the people around him or, you know, the, the imagination, the imagined notion of this sort of tight group of neocons. But it's very, very reminiscent of what happened back in 1940 um, when uh, the America First movement was trying to prevent America go to war. Um, it was a very powerful moment in America for isolationism. Uh, very much wanted to keep America out, and Poles were on their side. Spool on a year, you have the attack on Pearl Harbor, and that movement is utterly destroyed. Likewise, the movement for there not to be major American incursion into the Middle East was effectively destroyed by 9-11. It's no accident, I think, that um, uh, either way, either side of the way in which you look at it, that the conspiracy theorists about 9-11 have tended, and, and the major ones have tended, to describe it as the new Pearl Harbor, uh, and so on, because largely what they mean is as Roosevelt did in 1941 in bringing the Japanese attack down, so in an even worse way Bush did on 9-11 and so on, uh, giving a pretext for war. But the funny thing is it's called double-edged because for me, of course, it is the new Pearl Harbor of conspiracism. It follows very similar kind of pattern to the conspiracy theory, which something like the novelist Gore Vidal still believes, he still believes firmly that Roosevelt had decoded, and the American government had decoded Japanese uh, 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 um, signals before uh, 
uh, and just prior and prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, and had deliberately not warned the people at uh, Pearl Harbor because he wanted an attack to happen to have a pretext for war. It makes really no sense if you think it through, but nevertheless, it is it is kind of very similar. So, in those sort of situations, your your person, your object, is much clearer, even if there's no more uh, evidence. You talk about cheap popularity. I think, by and large, in my experience, the vast majority of people who talk about conspiracy theories uh, and who propagate them are utterly and completely honest. I think it's absolutely believed. Now, you could argue it's believed in the same way as Geoffrey Archer thinking he should be put out for the Nobel Prize <laughs> for Literature. You know, it, it might be a belief, but it's not necessarily good simply because you believe it. There are in areas of faux archaeology, and I've got a chapter on the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and Da Vinci Code, simply because it was great fun to do. I mean, really, no bigger reason than that. I mean, it was enormous fun to go into how this thing had happened uh, and the origins of it. Holy Blood, Holy Grail, one of the best-selling books of all time, outselling any proper history books, twice as boring as any history book, I can assure you, how that came to be and, uh, and how it came about. And there are some people on the, you know, on the edge of the Diana publication industry who's who, who, who I do doubt. But you take somebody like David Ray Griffin, who is the, who is the major figure now in the nine, what they call the 9-11 truth movement, I think he is utterly sincere. I wouldn't question his sincerity for five seconds. Uh, I think he's utterly ruthless in weeding out st stuff that is inconvenient for him and putting in stuff that is convenient for himself, but I'm absolutely certain that he does this from a position of uh, uh, conviction. Why so many? I got, I've, I've been on local radio for the last couple of days doing sessions about this, and they just, every time somebody phones in, there is a new one. Did you know that Mrs. Thatcher changed the weather? She changed the weather uh, at the beginning of the 80s because she was privatising the major utilities, and she wanted them to be profitable. So, um, so... Remember, we had that great run of summers. Actually, some of you won't remember this at all. In fact, this is going to always be divided into people who do remember this and people who don't, like the moon landings. Um, two fantastic summers in the middle of the 70s. And this guy obviously remembered this and thought that the weather had been changed so that we get wet, wet weather now. And I sort of very gently pointed out, as far as I knew, the meteorological office was saying that, in fact, if anything, our weather was slightly warmer than it had been, but was broadly on average. The average summer in Britain is a bit of a disappointment. It was when I was a kid, and it is now, uh, which is why we've always gone abroad for holidays uh, ever since cheap flights uh, uh, became available. Um, I'm now going to deal with the problem, the point about the Holocaust and so on. Can terrible conspiracies happen. A huge, enormous conspiracy. It is certainly true that some things can be kept very secret um, under certain circumstances. It was years after the Second World War that the full truth about Bletchley Park and Enigma actually came out. Um, and that's certainly true. And I think under certain circumstances, a country in particular, in, in, in particular position, can mobilise the secrecy of, of, of people. Um, I th my instinct is that that would be very difficult if you're trying to put one over on people, as opposed to, let's say, fighting a, a war, uh, which just about everybody in the country firmly believes in, and then after that believing that there is a necessity to keep this operation going uh, because, of other, because of other threats. But nevertheless, I have to kind of, I have to allow that such a thing exists. But with the Holocaust, it strikes me as being slightly different. Uh, isn't the problem that 
the Holocaust happened, though it happened in wartime, nevertheless, as given wartime, a logical continuation of what had been implicit right the way through Hitler's career from the from, the, from Mein Kampf onwards, through the Nuremberg race laws, through the Reichskristallnacht of 1938, through the killings and, put in, and putting into work camps and so on of Jews and persecution of the Jews, uh, wasn't that all present? Did it actually build up? Didn't it build up through the actions of the Einsatzgruppe uh, once the war had started in occupied Poland in shooting Jews as well as uh, commissars? And although it was only m made, if you like, into a kind of uh, a factory act, uh, towards the end of 1941, beginning of 1942, I think that there were people who could say to you, under conditions of warfare, this is the kind of, when, when, when Hitler talks about the elimination of the Jews, he may very well mean physical elimination of the Jews. There were plenty of Nazis who did say that and who advocated it all the way through the 30s. Now, the simple fact that maybe you're not listening well enough, now you could turn around to me and say, maybe there's something like that now that we're not taking sufficient notice of. Well, that may possibly be true. But I was very struck in um, that stage play based on Gitter Sereny's Albert Speer, which has a Hitler walking up and down, and he says, why did nobody take me seriously? I said what my position was with the Jews, and I did what I said. Thank you very much. Um, let's try and um, spread it around a bit. Um, you give one to the guy in the right in the middle there. Yeah. Oh, very good. Uh, thank you. Can I well, let's take somebody else as well. So we, um, yeah, why not? You're standing next to the microphone. So one, two. Go ahead. Yeah. Can I just say uh, that you implied there that uh, the 9/11 Truth Movement. Uh, talk about uh, likening 9-11 to Pearl Harbor. But the reason that we actually do that is because the, um, the document Rebuilding American Defenses uh, put out by the Project for the New American Century in September 2000, which uh, this gentleman down here referred to earlier, um, the quote, a direct quote from that document was, um, that the, uh, they, were, they were talking of how they would like to project military power into the Middle East um, and then went on to say that this will be a very slow process without a catalyzing and catastrophic event like a new Pearl Harbor. So uh, the, the quote doesn't actually come from us but from the neocons themselves. Okay. Uh, thanks. Um, interesting presentation. Um, look forward to reading the book. Um, can I just introduce um, a few kind of facts, um, in addition to what the gentleman just there just said, um, that about that quote, catalyzing and cataclysmic event like New Pearl Harbor. There are some other um, interesting quotes which are, are germane. Um, one, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, um, weapons of mass destruction was just something we could agree on. Um, there are all these oil fields just across the border in Kuwait. I've been trying to get people to do this for ages. Um, there's also the intelligence head saying the Americans have decided to invade months before UN resolutions were around in the summer of 2002, I believe. And the argument was the facts are fixed around the policy, which has become known uh, as the Downing Street memo. So when people were marching in the streets saying this is about oil, 
um, they were doing that with a legitimate basis, even though Tony Blair, like you are saying now, I suppose, so that was a conspiracy theory. So a bunch of um, rich millionaires, oil millionaires, invade an oil-rich country, and we suggest it might be about oil, and that's presented as a conspiracy theory. To me, that sounds like something which just kind of makes sense. Um, also, there are kind of more historical ones where, which are really damaging conspiracy theories. Uh, Gulf of Tonkin, um, the North Vietnamese fired on American ships. Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense at the time, now openly admits this didn't happen. That war cost millions of lives. So I mean, it seems to me that your position is kind of like we should only believe um, things which you know, the state or the establishment says and no other kind of speculation is necessary. The, the facts, the quotes which I'm talking about here suggest a different um, reason for people believing in some things, which is that that's where the facts lead them. I mean, on that, that last one, it sort of refers, doesn't it, to the, one of the reasons why people believed in MMR was because they were lied to about thalidomide. Uh, yeah, no, I th I th obviously there's a kind of degree of truth of that. Or actually, I don't think it's got anything to do with thalidomide. I think it had much more to do with BSE. Uh, uh, they weren't lied to about BSE, but there was sufficient medical confusion about BSE for there to kind of create a circumstance whereby people effectively say, what this one guy is saying can be the truth when maybe all these other people, the weight of opinion is wrong. I mean, funnily enough, you get the same thing in reverse over climate change. Um, there are what I would describe as practically climate change conspiracy theorists who believe that the whole idea of man-made climate change is got up by governments in order to raise taxes effectively and to control, uh, uh, and that's widely believed. Uh, but one of the factors about this is that, <laughs> if you like, and I don't want to be too crude about this, but conspiracy theorists of one stripe think the conspiracy theories of the other stripe are ridiculous. Um, and it's sort of, so you're very unlikely to find somebody who believes both that 9-11 was a conspiracy and that climate change is a conspiracy. Um, they tend, and they will regard the other side as absurd conspiracy theories and so on. I suppose actually by a, a law of, you know, in some strange universe, they're both right um, uh, uh, and so on. Um, I, I, I enjoy it always when somebody says, let's introduce some facts here, uh, because it always gets me going. I, I always sort of then wait for what's coming to find out what the fact is um, uh, before, I, b before, before I see it. Um, in the case of Gulf of Tonkin in 64, actually, which is another conspiracy theory which I believed, the, if you remember, the theory was that actually they had invented the incident of the North Vietnamese firing on the American destroyers in order to construct a pretext for the bombing of North Vietnam and therefore the widening, not the beginning of, but the widening of the war in Vietnam. Um, it's pretty apparent now that actually the Americans believed they had been fired upon. They were wrong. They had been fired on not long before, 
uh, and they believe they had been fired upon again. And it's clear from McNamara's uh, uh, words afterwards that they thought that they had to take up a strike a position with regard to the North Vietnamese as a result of this firing on their destroyers, uh, take a position which I think was catastrophic as a consequence, but it wasn't a conspiracy. Uh, they really did think they'd been fired. It was probably the result of sonar operators in the destroyers getting very edgy and seeing almost everything that was coming at them as incoming torpedoes. It's not a difficult situation to imagine. Has plenty, plenty of uh, precedents, but they're not all necessarily quite so uh, catastrophic. Um, as for the facts fixed around the policy, I mean, I know more about this, and I don't. I mean, I don't think that people who believe that the object of American foreign policy was oil are conspiracy theorists. I don't think they're right, as it happens. Uh, and I think if you look at the facts, then you can see that they can be worked up into a conspiracy theory, but per se they're not. And I'm not going to attack everybody who thinks what I don't think as being a conspiracy theory. So that's kind of, you know, that's, I, I think that's unnecessarily, that's unnecessarily crude. I do think that there was something of a determination on the part of the Americans to take down Sudan either directly or indirectly. And I think there was a belief on the part of Blair that if this could be so engineered so that the international community put so much pressure on Sudan to conform to UN resolutions and climb down, that that would effectively mean the end of Sudan in any kind of way, and would also, in the words of uh, Voltaire, would also pour encourager les autres. In other words, in a world where they would begun, begun to be worried about the proliferation of WMD in a terrorist world, they needed the victory over Iraq in terms of its, in terms of its demilitarization effectively in order to show other countries what was necessary to be done. I'm pretty convinced that that was the thinking uh, certainly behind, behind Blair uh, and so on. The consequence we, we can argue about for the till the cows come home, but I would personally... I would think that that's the uh, course of the course of events. Now, if you strongly disagree with me, that does not make you a conspiracy theorist. Hmm. And by the way, if there is anybody who has got an entertaining new conspiracy theory along the lines of the factor <laughs> and the weather, can they put both hands up and we'll right. take we'll take them first? But uh, so, uh, where haven't we been? We haven't actually been around this side much, have we? So, uh, this. A lot of blue shirts tonight, but that, that's it's suspicious, that's, isn't that's it? It's a bit suspicious. And then um, Metropolitan Police, I'd say. Go on, let's head, let's head right, right to the back there. Go on, let's pick up um, the man with the new conspiracy theory. There, yeah. So on this side first, please. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have sympathy with um, some of what you're saying about some of the conspiracies, in particular this thing called the Protocols, which sounds like a disgusting sort of book, um, but. Um, I just wonder if you have actually thought about some of the evidence which emerged uh, about stock and share insider dealing prior to 9-11. And um, I wonder if you, I mean, I, I mean I, I, if the people who were dealing inside, insider dealing behind, before 9-11 were professional stockbrokers. It's just possible that they may just possibly have guessed all at once, wouldn't it be a great idea to invest in the shares of these airlines and, and derivative products in these airlines and make millions overnight? It's just possible. I mean, I'll give you that. But 
if the people who are doing this don't normally ever invest in stocks and shares, it does seem as though there has to be some there have to be some questions asked. And the problem I find, and I, I, I put it to you, that I, I think you would sympathise. Surely it doesn't help the position of the CIA that they actually had this information classified, because that's practically like a red rag to a ball. People are going to say, well, you know, if there's nothing going on, why would you classify this information? And my second question um, is, are, are you absolutely sure that you're familiar with all the literature? Because you've said several times that it was Bush and his colleagues who produced 9-11, but my distinct impression reading Webster Tartley's literature is that he, he most emphatically says it was not Bush. Um, and that Bush uh, was, to some extent, himself a victim of 9-11, uh, um, but then later on became a po ex post facto conspirator, if you like, to save his own neck. Um, and then my very, very final question is really relating to this issue of the weapons of mass destruction, and I do really have to take issue with you here because um, it's... There's an underlying pretext of what you're saying is that it's actually relevant and it's spectacularly irrelevant. It's, a, it's in the first place not uh, consistent with what Hans Blix and his colleagues found. But ev even if it were the case, the doctrines of preemptive strike and continuing authority were contrivances by oh, Professor no, Greenwood and they have no real basis in okay. international law. Thank you. Okay. That's three for the price of one. Then. So if you could just ask one question, that'll be, sorry to be unfair, but just one question. You at the back. Okay, thank you very much. So uh, my new conspiracy Great. that you asked me to put forward was that, in fact, David, like this is just the, the, the perfect thing that you'd expect from the US government, that they take this figure on the liberal left and get him to come out and write a book you know, debunking all these conspiracy theories. So I want David to explain to me why he's not a CIA agent and how he can conv <laughs> convince me of that. So, I mean, I guess the, the slightly serious question there is that, you know, that there is an inherent limit to, like, you know, the strength of your argument, right? Because I can instantly raise that type of question. Um, and I guess the other slight question that I'll put in uh, is how do you distinguish sort of the operation of conspiracies from the operation of our political and economic elites. So uh, the other day I saw an article in the New York Times about Tim Geithner's links with Wall Street and you know, they had his daily diary. And it you know, strikes me that you know, while these groups, these political and economic elites may not sort of move in a you know, deliberate concert, you know, there are still sort of powerful forces in, in society uh, sort of making things happen. Okay, um, I'm not, despite the applause, going to get into the business of the Iraq war again. I mean, it's, I just, what I've learned is that you can, for six years now, um, we've been turning this one hither and yon, hither and yon, and I am now at the stage where I don't expect anybody to change any of their mind about any aspect of it at all. Um, sorry, that's, that, that's the kind of, that, that's the way it is. Uh, you know, if this were a discussion, about learning the lessons of the Iraq war, then I would 
talk about it at length, but it isn't. So I'm, I'm really not going to. And it's not because I'm dodging it. It's because I just really don't see the point. Um, but you do make other points, which I will try and deal with. The share dealing on 9-11. Uh, it's funny you should mention this, because actually I was just going over this point on one of the sites the, the other day. And uh, although I don't have the reference to hand, uh, apparently there was a, uh, a piece of share advice on airline advice went out um, uh, not long before 9-11. I mean, it's just an absolutely overt piece of speculation about what was going to happen to aircraft shares and uh, airline shares, uh, and that's the reason why there was a, uh, some kind of a spike in airline share dealing. Uh, it's not really... I mean, I gather these things happen all the time, so I don't really think I'd read too much into that. But you did set my, um, my juices going with your mention of Webster Tartley. Because I have an entire thing in this book called A Digressive Note on Webster Tartley. Um, Webster Tartley, um, you may not know this, but Webster Tartley for many years was connected with a man called Lyndon LaRouche. Uh, Lyndon LaRouche is a kind of cultist figure. Uh, do you remember the case of, the, of that uh, Jewish student who died in Germany? Uh, fairly recently and was connected with the LaRouche organization and Lyndon LaRouche is this sort of strange kind of, he's been imprisoned before for, for, for fraud uh, has stood in presidential elections, has tried to infiltrate parts of the Democratic Party in particular runs a magazine called Executive Intelligence Review which sometimes gets quoted by people who aren't quite aware of where this all comes from um, and, uh, and attend, for some reason has quite a lot of money um, uh, and, but believes one of its sort of most great beliefs is actually the responsibility for everything bad that's happened in the world lies with the British royal family um, drug dealing, share dealing, the city of London the malign effects of the city of London on, uh, uh, on, uh, uh, on the world economy um, and I say that in his book against, against oligarchy, Tarpley charges that the events leading to the Great Depression are all related to British economic warfare against the rest of the world. And in surviving the cataclysm, as I say, one of his targets is Karl Marx, who is described possibly for the first time as an Anglo-Venetian ideologue. Um, I saw Tarpley speak in Friend's House in 2005, um, and it was sort of it was a, it was quite an interesting experience. Uh, he is probably sort of towards the far edge. My comrades in the 9/11 movement who are here uh, will probably vouch for this. He's probably towards the far edge uh, uh, of that movement, I would guess, and not somebody I would necessarily want to uh, uh, rely upon. I, uh, by the way, I should just say, apropos of the point that the chap raised earlier about the new Pearl Harbor, that is indeed one of the other reasons why Pearl Harbor is invoked is because of this, uh, because of this document uh, mentioning. I mean, the document is actually about whether or not America will invest sufficiently in a new uh, in a new generation of weaponry, uh, absent a new Pearl Harbor. So, the, the notion that it says. Um, we need to get the Middle East well invaded, but we won't be able to do it unless there's a new Pearl Harbor is actually not true. Um, the economic and political elite, of course. Of course, there are such elites in societies. They tend not to be kind of, you know, incredibly tightly knit and in each other's trousers all the time in quite the way that some people imagine. But nevertheless, 
There are. I mean, one of the things that always made me that made me laugh a few years ago was when Jeremy Paxman was uh, launching a book uh, about the establishment and denied the person who was interviewing him that he was part of the establishment. Mm. Uh, and it's it's very interesting because um, we are never ourselves members of the establishment. It's always it's just like we are never ourselves rich. It's always the people immediately above us who are rich. It, will, you know, it, it, it amused me, for instance, to have a professor of theology like David Ray Griffin lecture to people about what it is the elite thinks, when most people in America would regard him very definitely as being part of the elite, you know, intellectual and so on. For the purposes of right-wingers, the, there is the intellectual elite, the liberal elite, that runs newspapers, runs Hollywood, and so on. And to a certain extent, to a certain loose extent, that is true. And we do have elites in societies, and they do tend to meet each other a fair bit. And what one hopes is within, within the incredibly kind of vociferous process of democracy, their desire, which can be, uh, you know, which, which can be there sometimes to rule, is overruled. And usually I think it is. Okay. Just on the, the politics, as you, you were. Um, labelled or accused, I'm not sure, of being a, uh, of the liberal left. Um, do you think, on the politics of conspiracy theory and also why one may fear them, do you think there is something in the idea that, um, this is partly perhaps about your own political voyage, but also the fact that we are in a uh, situation where there is a tremendous lack of confidence in ideology and there is a, a grave kind of fear around the idea of the radical. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's that, you, that maybe somehow unlock the, both the attraction of conspiracies and why, uh, why, why um, you know, the liberal left or the liberal right even may be so fearful of them. I, it, I, I, I imagine that you can have a sort of upswing of conspiracism because of the reasons you talk about. One of these I should stress is that all kinds of different societies at all kinds of different times have significant amounts of conspiracism in them. Uh, and, you know, uh, the circumstances are very different. The Arab world is not the same, uh, it doesn't have the same political structures as us, and yet is deeply conspiracist in its, uh, in its political thinking. Now, sometimes you can think that maybe this becomes a kind of shorthand um, when other political activity is not really available to you. Uh, you can explain your own powerlessness and your own... It's a very difficult word I was going to use. I was going to use the word cowardice, but I don't really mean it in the sense of people, because you have to be in that position, really. But if political activity is actually a very difficult thing to do, you may need an excuse to, as to why you absent yourself from it. Uh, just as people who are defeated politically sometimes need the excuse of a conspiracy to explain that defeat. No, it's not because I was deficient. It was not because my arguments were insufficiently persuasive. It's not because I was insufficiently zealous uh, in prosecuting the argument. It's because they were so cunning and so powerful that I couldn't get anywhere. And I think that sometimes is sometimes why it happens. But if the question is... If we live in an unideological age, is kind of conspiracy a way, a conspiracism, a, a mindset you can get into instead of having to grapple with, you know, joining up to a party or a political movement? And um, I suppose that's, I suppose that's possible. In other words, sort of modern conspiracism is a kind of reflection of individualism, uh, you know, and, and 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 the lack of desire to get politically involved. But it has to be said. 
that quite a lot of the people involved in some of the 9-11 movement, they, they are immensely active. You know, they are as active as any political activist ever would be, if not more so. They churn out the leaflets, they go to the meetings, they're incredibly dedicated, uh, and so on. I mean, I'm not saying all the people who believe this. And it actually is a frustration, quite often, for some other people on the left, particularly, mm. to watch them doing it and thinking, well, if only you kind of turned all this into activity in, the, in our common cause, it, it might do some good. I mean, I know Noam Chomsky, for instance, believes that. Yeah. Then I, I feel that way about the Liberal Democrats. Um, <laughs> so can we take the um, the lady in the purple there, just to your left, and then after that, sorry, where's the other mic gone? Um, and another woman there. Where's my other mic gone? Oh, there I was. Sorry, I'll come to you. I'll come to you next time. I promise. Uh, but let's take the gentleman in the red over there. Um, hi, David. I just wondered what you think this means for journalism. Um, can you hear me? Is there any danger that investigative journalism can now be labelled as conspiracy theorism? Hmm. Yeah. In fact, let's take quite a few. So you in the red, and then can you give the guy in the beige jacket there? Let's take three. Yeah, please. Yeah, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, I was just waiting for him to... He's listening. Okay. I was wondering whether in, in your examination of the conspiracy theories, whether you actually found a conspiracy theory that was true. <laughs> yeah. um, the reason why I ask this, I understand that in America um, uh, this century, there were experiments done in one of the states on some black, poor black people to see what the results of these experiments, medical experiments, what the results were. Now, an antidote apparently was found, but they weren't told about this by the government. And as only, I, I think, it was Clinton who had to, they finally came out, uh, and Clinton had to apologise and, and um, compensation was paid to these uh, people. Now, it seems to me it it's behoves us not to take everything on face value and that when governments say things, it may not be true. Okay, take that. And then, so, chat there. Yeah, could I just... Any other ones, quickly? Anybody else? We'll take another one. Um, sorry, yeah, you've had your hand up a lot of times. Chat in the green. So beige, then green, sorry. Yeah, could I just follow what was being said here? Where do we go from here, David? That's the question for me. Um, as a journalist, we're told that we make history on the run. <laughs> and as a journalist, I know that a lot of the time we can't tell the full truth about the situation because it's very difficult to establish from an aeroplane crash through to some subtle politics stuff. Where do we go when there's less and less journalistic opportunity in many areas legitimately? We know what Murdoch's papers said about the Iraq war across the world. They all are in favor of it. And it's a serious question that we have to raise about that. How do we find things? The second thing I wonder if you think that maybe people who are today's conspiracy theorists are people in a few years' time are respected historians. I remember in early in my life, there was a great suspicion in politics that the Communist Party was funded by the Kremlin. This was regarded as a paranoid smear by other people, a state smear for smearing comrades. We now know, in fact, that was true. There was, on the other side of things, during the Cold War, we were led to believe the Americans were buying up magazines and having a big influence on domestic British politics. Francis Donna Saunders wrote a wonderful book about the Congress for Cultural Freedom. It was about 30 years after it all happened. At the time, people raising these issues were, could reasonably be accused of being conspiracy theorists. Great. Subsequently, good things are written 
Quick question, finally. Did you know when you were in the CP that it was being funded with Kremlin gold? Okay. And then finally, sorry. Yeah, two little things. First, there's a rumor that, that you are the one who wrote that very negative review on your book on Amazon. <laughs> sorry? There's a rumor that you are the one who wrote a very negative review on your book on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> more, more seriously, um, um, a number of the conspiracies we talked about are actually fairly old. We're, you could go from the Holy Grail to the Zionist terrorists to modern technology, modern media, uh, the internet, etc. Do you see a big change in the nature, quality, size, whatever you want to define it, of modern conspiracy theories versus these ones? Great question. Great question. Okay, David. Right. Um, let's rack two and one number questions number one and number three up together, which is uh, because they both concern journalism, uh, one way or another, and. Uh, deficiencies of journalism or investigative journalism. I mean, we know that journalism, conventional journalism, is under a lot of pressure. You only have to watch Series 5 of The Wire to understand that, or in fact the, <laughs> fact, or in fact, the real fact that the Boston Globe might be about to close, uh, which is an extraordinary thing, just thinking back a few years. I mean, this is one of the major regional newspapers in America. Um, uh, you can read Nick Davis's book, I don't buy all of it, but Flat Earth uh, News does convey something of the story about what's been happening in journalism outside the BBC. I exempt the BBC to a large extent from this for the moment because we have allowed it, and it is one of the great things about this country, is that we have allowed it to stand relatively unaffected by these pressures. But nevertheless, investigative journalism as such is very, very expensive. And not only is it very expensive, but it actually very rarely gives you huge results. It's an enormous investment of time for actually dramatically little return, even in its great days. But those few bits of dramatic return were extraordinary. And I think that they kind of created an idea of what journalism was, which sort of then lasted for 20 or 25 years and may have had a rather kind of distorting effect on the other business of journalism, which was reporting on and analysing what happened. Uh, which, in other words, which is a guide to helping people understand the truth about the world around them, is actually possibly more important than investigative journalism was, funnily enough. Investigative journalism was the kind of really sexy bit um, and one was in a kind of way almost attracted to the self-image of the investigative reporter in the Woodward and Bernstein mode. But actually, the nitty-gritty business of doing good journalism was always far less attractive than that. And funnily enough, that's the bit, not the investigative journalism, which I think has become increasingly under threat, the decline of specialist journal journalists in certain areas, their capacity to interrogate certain things. And it brings us back to this last one, so we'll wrap them up in a way together. This now uh, is combined with new media, uh, the growth of new media. And I understand new media is offering incredible possibilities and incredible dangers. The incredible possibilities are obviously its kind of democratic extent. Anybody can do something. And that's also the problem. It is incredibly difficult for us to be able to discriminate between all these zillions of some things. That's the problem. So in some way, I mean, I, we are now uh, at the Times thinking about whether or not we're not going to have to charge for access. And if we do, all the newspapers will have to do it together. But the problem is everybody has got used to having their material for free on the internet. Very, very few people want to pay anymore. 
And yet, journalism costs money. Good journalism costs money. There isn't such a thing as good free journalism. There might be such a thing as somebody standing on the street corner being able to tell you what they could see at that moment. That isn't journalism, actually. Uh, it is valuable in itself, but it isn't the business of journalism. Uh, and if you like, part of the new conspiracism comes actually from people's continuous... I mean, you, you see it again and again. David Ray Griffin himself got into conspiracism because of what he found on uh, websites. So did Michael Meacher and so on. And their inability, really, in my opinion, to be able to discriminate between what they were finding on these internets and being able to sort of, if you like, interrogate what lay, lay behind them was very problematic. Well, this happens a zillion times over. I mean, Charlie and I were just having a debate about Wikipedia, one of those kind of, You've all had this discussion about Wikipedia. If you've not had it, uh, I'd be very surprised about whether on balance it's a good thing or on balance it's a bad thing. But what we generally agree about is it has incredible possibilities and incredible problems. And those show themselves in the kind of conspiracy, in the conspiracy area. Uh, and they are, but they are nevertheless a huge, huge challenge to conventional journalism. Um, uh, and I frankly I don't know the answer and, I, uh, and I'm not at all sure that anybody actually does know the answer I could say please 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 subscribe to proper kind of journalistic resources to keep the thing going but it sounds rather pathetic a rather well-heeled journalist like me coming over all sort of please give us your charity you know taking your tired huddled <laughs> journalists and yearning to write um, but nevertheless, that's sort of the situation, sort of the situation that we're in, and I don't know how it will uh, how it will balance out. Um, now, I'm trying to read my own writing. Um, I can read the word ah oh, yes 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 um, real conspiracies uh, or past conspiracies and so on. Um, uh, the Tuskegee incident and so on. I mean, the use of uh, people as effectively human guinea pigs. Actually, pretty common in the 30s, uh, in all kinds of countries, uh, and not uncommon after the war, if we remember those British servicemen who signed up to be present at uh, atomic tests, and so a far more casual attitude than we have now towards what we would call questions of basic health and safety and responsibility. Nevertheless, uh, they were there. I, I haven't done enough work on them to know whether they constitute secret conspiracies or whether they were done semi-overtly but nobody really was that bothered with them at the time sufficiently and it was you know and it was you know just as some people have a kind of now as we often nowadays have a sort of fairly callous attitude to some people who fall through all the social security nets whether there weren't similarly callous attitudes adopted towards certain sections of society in those days which actually we just wouldn't and whether this isn't if you like us looking back on the past and saying well god we'd never do that and, uh, and it's a good thing too uh, however parliament was lied to about Suez. it was lied to they stood up and said that there was no secret agreement with Israel about uh, about beginning the attack on Egypt, and that was a lie. There was such an agreement between the French and British and Israeli governments, as it happens. Um, so it does happen. I mean, you know, and obviously people do lie. So when I'm talking about conspiracy theories, I'm not talking... And there are actually sometimes real, uh, real conspiracies, real secret things to do something. I mean... 
I don't think there are very many things very much behind what we call false flag incidents. I don't believe, for instance, that Hitler set fire to the Reichstag. But I do believe that Hitler dressed some dead people up in, uh, in German border guard uh, or Polish border guard uh, uniforms and filmed them for the propaganda uh, 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 cameras uh, in an act of sort of stunning kind of superfluity, really given that he was going to invade and didn't really give a bugger what anybody thought about it anyway. But nevertheless, he certainly did do that. But in general, I don't think that there are very many such instances. They're difficult to organise, and people usually organise their pretexts differently because people generally do the thing that they say that they're going to do. Um, you know, one of the problems about 9-11 always is the lengths that 9-11 theorists have to go to to deny that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda did the thing that they said they did, that, they had that people like them had effectively tried to do before, and that was perfectly consistent with everything they said and thought about how, in other words, for them, the attack on the Twin Towers was nobility. It was a noble attack and a noble act, and so on. But they have to construct a kind of notion, you know, the the video of Bin Laden was faked, you know, he looks a bit fat in it. This is done, taken from one froze, uh, freeze frame. If you look through the whole thing, he's not in fact fat. But, uh, but the point is the lengths that are gone to in order to, uh, in order to establish this. Uh, the Communist Party, funded by the Kremlin, um, not very much though. I mean, really, really not. I mean, really, really not very much. It has, it has to be said. Well, it certainly, if it was, it certainly wasn't all a one go. That was probably spread over 30 years. I mean, funnily enough, it never surprised me that they subsidised the Morning Star because I could never quite see, because I used to have to sell it uh, on Student Union steps. And there was a kind of, I used to get take, take Fridays, and the reason why I used to take Fridays was all the truck papers came out on Fridays too, and we'd all be there, so it'd be collected, whereas on the other days, the more poor old Morning Star came out daily was on his own, or her own. And we used to sell each other each other's papers. And if you got a good collection of trots, you could get rid of your ten in no time, simply by buying a copy of Red Weekly, Socialist Worker, Workers Fight, Up the Worker, whatever else it was called, and you'd be home in five minutes' time, and so on. Tuesdays were really bad. Um, because that, because that wasn't the case. So I'd always assumed there was a degree of sort of cross-subsidy, but not very much. Um, what amazed me was how some of my colleagues, uh, who actually were uh, uh, full-time to the party, and indeed my father, were deeply shocked by it. I mean, really deeply, deeply shocked by it. Uh, they really hadn't known that there was such, uh, such a subsidy. But again, in a way, the reason why I wasn't surprised was the Communist Party sort of supported Russia even after Czechoslovakia, they said Czechoslovakia was bad, but it sort of said Russia was a good thing, where other people said it was a bad thing. And Russia sort of said the British Communist Party was a good thing. So it was pretty consistent with what both of them said, that one should give the, you know, when, you know, should give the other a few quid when it was hard up. This was not sort of one of the great, it didn't strike me as being one of the kind of great surprises of world history, nor really should it be that both the CIA and uh, Russian intelligence that operated around the fringes, particularly of third world movements in the 60s and 70s, and, and third world uh, and, and cultural organisations uh, and student organisations, 
vying in order to try it didn't actually control them but they but but they did have people who they talked to and so on um, because they were vying for influence in the in, in third world countries and I suppose this was was shadowy but most of what security forces do is kind of fairly shadowy and what they did was fairly consistent with their stated objectives uh, in each case and therefore though it was secret it wasn't unreasonable to expect that it was happening we are out of time, I'm afraid. It just reminds me, it reminds me to say that um, stay where you are for a second and let David get out the back to sign his, uh, his, so he can sign copies of his book. And for those of you who are, this is really cheeky, but for those of you who are remotely interested in the answer to David's question about is there anybody who's written a book about possible answers to the media crisis, well, one is sitting alongside him. Um, so I didn't bring any copies to sign, but if you want to get my book, which attempts at least to try and answer that question. Uh, but just to give David a, a round of applause for what has been a fantastic evening. Thank you very much.